you for inviting me here today to talk uh, to the Public International Law Discussion Group, um, which is a pleasure and, and an honor. So today uh, I'm going to talk to you about a branch of public international law known as international investment law, which some of you may be uh, familiar with. Um, as Jessica says, uh, I'm from a law firm called Arnold & Porter, which is a DC-based law firm. I'm a partner in London. Uh, we uh, have acted in a number of the cases that I'm going to discuss today, including some cases that are not yet finally decided. Um, and so um, uh, <laughs> Uh, the, the caveat to my presentation uh, is that um, uh, the Chatham House rule uh, will apply. For those of you who have not been to Chatham House or familiar with Chatham House, um, it's a rule of non-attribution. So if I say um, my client's case is rubbish because and they should lose, you're allowed to freely say that my client's case is rubbish and they should lose, uh, but you're not allowed to say that I said that on, on this particular occasion. Um, so, um, uh, and, and that way we can, we can speak freely and I can answer your questions freely, even in respect to cases that, uh, that I, I'm involved in. Um, so international investment law um, primarily arises out of something called bilateral investment treaties, primarily. Um, the first uh, bilateral investment treaty uh, was signed just over 50 years ago in 1959 between uh, Germany and Pakistan. Um, so this is an area of law which is uh, less than 50 years old. Um, but over the last 50 years, uh, over 2,700, probably closing on 3,000 bilateral investment treaties have been signed around the world by most sovereign states around the world uh, and so it's one of the most prolifically developing fields of treaty making um, in public international law um, and in fact the number of bilateral investment treaties has accelerated significantly even in the last 10 years um, if you go back approximately 10 years the estimate was there were about a thousand bilateral investment treaties at that time uh, and today, as I say, the, the number is much closer to 3,000. So um, uh, there's been an acceleration in the, in the putting into place of network of bilateral investment treaties uh, around the world. So uh, what is a bilateral investment treaty? Um, it's an international treaty uh, between two sovereign states governed by the law of treaties uh, containing reciprocal undertakings for the promotion and protection of investments by nationals of one party state uh, in the other state's territory. Uh, the terms of bilateral investment treaties vary somewhat because they are uh, uh, negotiated, um, but they generally um, follow a pattern. Uh, and they generally include a certain number of rights and obligations, um, such as an obligation to provide national treatment for investments, um, most favored nation, MFN, treatment, fair and equitable treatment of investments, uh, full protection and security 
of investments, uh, the right to repatriate capital and profits, um, and compensation in cases of expropriation. So that particular catalogue of uh, rights and obligations tends to be found in most, although not all, of uh, the bilateral investment treaties. Um, And one of the particular features, as you may be aware, is they usually grant the right to private parties, investors, uh, the right to sue uh, the the sovereign host state uh, by bringing international arbitration proceedings. So although they are treaties between two sovereign states, they create enforceable rights, enforceable in arbitration, in the hands of private parties. And that's where a lot of the interest lies. Um, Another way of looking at them is that they are short, uh, incredibly badly drafted uh, documents. Um, And there is uh, some extrinsic evidence uh, that at least sometimes the diplomats that prepared them and the politicians who signed them had very little idea of what they were doing. Um, So they are, in a sense, controversial um, treaties. Um, and there are a fair number of uh, second thoughts and regrets amongst sovereign states um, who now say they didn't realize at all what it was that they were letting themselves into in agreeing to these very vague, broadly uh, drafted um, uh, obligations which are you know, uh, enforceable in front of international Uh, arbitration tribunals. So anyone interested in a career in public international law, um, particularly outside of government or uh, academia, anyone who wants to put uh, public international law into practice is likely to find more opportunities in the field of uh, BIT cases, bilateral investment treaty cases, than than anywhere else. It's 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 a big, growing field with lots of cases and calls for public international law uh, expertise. Um, So uh, until recently, um, it could probably be said that the idea behind the growth of bilateral investment treaties was that capital exporting countries uh, wanted them to protect uh, their investors when they export capital, and capital importing countries agreed to them in order to attract inward FDI, inward foreign direct investment. Now, that was never entirely true because the big capital exporting nations, such as the US, the UK, France, Germany, etc., have always been big capital importing nations too, um, uh, and generally from each other. Um, And they have never seen the need to conclude bilateral investment treaties uh, among themselves. Uh, There's no German-U.S. bilateral investment treaty or German-Franco-German bilateral investment treaty. Um, um, So it it was probably more accurate to say uh, that the explosion of bits came about because capital-exporting, highly developed countries pushed for them and capital-importing, developing countries agreed to them essentially to provide for the protection of capital flows from the former to the latter. It's probably a more accurate um, analysis. But bit obligations are framed reciprocally. 
Um, and we are actually now beginning to see cases in which investors from developing countries are bringing bit claims uh, against developed countries. So in the far past uh, month, for example, uh, there is uh, a Chinese bank has brought uh, a bit claim uh, against uh, Belgium um, arising uh, from uh, Belgium's uh, uh, nationalisation of Fortis Bank during the uh, current credit crunch. So we are now starting to see the reciprocality coming into play, and that has all sorts of interesting uh, ramifications as the capital exporting countries find themselves on the receiving end of, of these kind of claims. Um, another uh, interesting development, recent development, is there are now some cases um, of uh, uh, big cases um, between uh, developed countries. So one developed country, uh, investor from one developed country suing uh, uh, another developed country. And so, for example, in the last uh, couple of months, um, uh, a, an energy company from Sweden, Vattenfall, um, has brought uh, a big case against Germany uh, on account of Germans, Germany's decision to shelve uh, nuclear power. Uh, they brought that under not under a bilateral investment treaty, it's under the Energy Charter Treaty, which is a multilateral uh, sectoral investment treaty of some importance. Um, but so Germany is being sued by a Swedish investor uh, on account of its decision to uh, can nuclear power. There were also uh, solar energy cases where um, various first world European countries that uh, um, put into place very generous um, subsidies for solar power, having second thoughts and wanting to withdraw those subsidies, and various uh, companies, investors in solar energy are now starting to sue um, countries like Spain uh, and others. Um, so those are developed country against developed country. So the, the, the picture is becoming more interesting. It's becoming more complex because we're stepping out of that one-dimensional <coughs> investor from developed country suing um, underdeveloped country or developing country, and we're now seeing something rather more interesting and more complex, which is going to be challenging uh, in a variety of different ways because of the reciprocal nature of bit obligations. Um, bits fit within a wider framework, which is uh, the ICSID uh, framework, the ICSID convention, which you may be familiar with, 1965 ICSID convention, which was um, uh, entered into under the auspices of the World Bank, there were over 140 countries that are members of the ICSID Convention. And for those of you not familiar with it, the ICSID Convention created a center for the international settlement of investment disputes. Um, so often BIT uh, treaties, BITs or ECT, will refer to, will provide for arbitration for dispute resolution and will provide as an option um, uh, dispute resolution before the ICSID, uh, International Center for the Settlement of Investment Disputes. One of the interesting things about the ICSID Convention in, in 1965 is this, um, this uh, International Center for the Settlement of Investment Disputes was largely set up 
along the lines uh, used in international commercial arbitration. So the form of, of international arbitration which the exit convention um, uh, puts into place you know, is made up of ad hoc tribunals for each dispute, tribunal members chosen by the parties, and disputes heard largely in private. And the implications of that choice are still uh, reverberating with us today and being uncovered today, <clears throat> and there's quite a lot of controversy, um, and that controversy will increase as first world or developed countries uh, find themselves on the receiving end of exit claims. Um, uh, uh, the, that choice of allowing private parties to have a say in who will be on an international tribunal deciding uh, the, the obligations of sovereign states under a treaty, uh, largely in private, um, is, is, is controversial um, uh, and and, you know, uh, is, is leading to uh, a, number of, uh, a number of controversies, including the withdrawal by some countries from the exit convention. Um, now, there are lots and lots of topics of interest in the area of investment treaty arbitration, and today I'm only going to talk about one, um, and that one only affects about 190 bilateral investment treaties out of the 3,000-odd uh, in existence. But they are important um, bilateral investment treaties. They're sometimes called the intra-EU bits. Um, and the topic for today is, are investments still protected under intra-EU bits? Um, just to put that in perspective, about half of the world's bits, you know, in the region of 1,300 or more, uh, have been entered into by EU member states. Um, if you take the three biggest member states, uh, Germany, France, and the UK, they've entered into around 100 each. Um, and um, so, so the EU member states have been a big part of the putting into place of a network of worldwide bits. Now, no EU member state has ever, ever entered into a BIT with another EU state. So you might ask, well, how are there any intra-EU bits in that case. And they have arisen, um, I wouldn't say by accident, but they have arisen in a particular way. They've they have arisen um, because of and at the, on the occasion of EU, EEC, EC, EU enlargement. Um, so as you will know, there were originally six member states of the EEC, that became nine in 1973. The nine became ten in 1981. The ten became twelve with Spain and Portugal in 86. Twelve became fifteen in 95. Fifteen became twenty-five in 2004, and twenty-five became twenty-seven in uh, uh, in 2007. So there were six rounds of enlargement of the uh, EC EEC EU. Um, and so there were a number of bits that started life as bits concluded between an EU member state and a country that was not part of the EU that became intra-EU bits upon accession of the non-EU member state to the EU. The initial rounds of, of enlargement didn't raise uh, this issue to any great extent 
There were apparently bilateral investment treaties between Germany and Greece and between Germany and Portugal, and therefore those two bits became intra-EU bits on the second and third enlargements in in 81 and and 86. (coughs) But to my knowledge, there have never been any cases brought under those um, BITs. Uh, But the position has changed radically in the last few years, um, notably with the 2004 and then the 2007 uh, rounds of enlargement. Uh, The 10 new member states in 2004 and the two extras, the stragglers, in 2007. Um, If we leave to one side the the island states, Mediterranean states of Cyprus and Malta, uh, what the other... um, Uh, 10 have in common is they are um, former members of the Eastern Bloc um, or or CIS um, or at least almost all of them are Um, and uh, as you will recall um, uh, at the end of the Cold War there was the collapse of the Soviet Union and the the Communist Bloc uh, and a number of those countries looked westwards for um, uh, development and took an interest in joining the EU. Um, those countries uh, at the time had barely functioning uh, market economies, if they were market economies at all, and they were largely state-run, and they were going to require copious reforms and massive amounts of FDI, foreign direct investment, uh, before they could realistically entertain the disciplines of EU membership. Um, In the 1990s, membership for those countries still looked a fairly distant prospect, um, and instead they signed what were once known as association agreements and became known as Europe agreements uh, with the EU member states to prepare them for the eventual rigours of of EU membership and to prepare them um, for when they uh, formally launched their candidacy uh, to join the EU. Um, Interestingly, the Europe agreements, uh, first of all, encouraged uh, foreign direct investment from other member states uh, into what were to be the candidate countries and encouraged the protection of FDI through the conclusion of bilateral investment treaties. So the member states were encouraged, notably by the European Commission, to enter into bilateral investment treaties in order to uh, attract uh, investment from other EU countries that that would help them prepare for EU entry. Um, And thus it was that in the 1990s and early 2000s, about 190 or so bilateral investment treaties were entered into between member states and candidate countries uh, of the former Eastern Bloc. So if you take, as an example, Romania... Romania entered into 17 bilateral investment treaties in that period with Austria, Belgium, Bulgaria, Czech Republic, Denmark, Finland, France, Germany, Greece, Italy, Netherlands, Portugal, Spain, Sweden, Hungary, Slovakia, and the UK. So most of the other uh, EU, uh, existing EU member states and some of the other candidates. So during the late 1990s and, and onwards, the candidate countries were attempting to pull off the dual challenge of attracting foreign direct investment under the cover of bilateral investment treaties, whilst reforming their economies and much of their law 
in order to adopt the acquis communautaire, which is a prerequisite for joining the, the EU. And in a number of instances, uh, foreign investors have taken issue with the treatment of their investments uh, at the hands of the host state and have brought raised claims under the relevant bilateral investment treaty. Um, it's estimated that there are about 64, um, or there were as of January 2012, 64 BIT cases brought against EU member states. Um, most of those have been brought against the member states from the 2004-2007 enlargement, and 75% of the cases are accounted for by just six new member states. So they're cases against the Czech Republic, Poland, Romania, Hungary, Slovakia, and Estonia. That's the bulk of, uh, of the cases. And, and, um. Now, a challenge we have in understanding what's going on is that uh, not all of these cases are in the public domain, um, and so uh, it, it can be a little bit difficult to find out um, what has happened in some of these cases. Um, uh, the ICSID tries to encourage, so where, where the forum is ICSID, the ICSID Secretariat tries to encourage parties to agree to the publication of awards, so a large number of ICSID awards are certainly public. Um, but other fora, that, you know, you can bring a, a, a big claim often before the, the Stockholm Chamber of Arbitration or UNCITRAL, uh, either ad hoc or, or, or administered or before the ICC or even the RCIA, not all of these cases are, are in the public domain. There is a website, IA Reporter, which does a particularly good job of trying to um, unearth these uh, cases, in, in particular by making a freedom of information request to the relevant uh, governments. But we know, for example, that Poland is sitting on a number of awards that no one knows, or no one other than Poland and the investors know what they say. The same is true of the Czech Republic. So we only have an incomplete picture of, uh, of these, uh, of, of these uh, things. Um, now, the European Commission, notwithstanding that as recently as 2003, it was encouraging um, uh, candidate countries to enter into um, bilateral investment treaties, has in recent years rather changed its tune and now takes the position that intra-EU bits clash with EU law in a number of ways and even describes the existence of intra-EU bits as an anomaly uh, within the EU internal market. Um, there, there are a number of things that the Commission says and has said. It intervenes as amicus curiae in a number of cases. Um, uh, and among the things the Commission has said is that, first of all, um, bits, intra-EU bits, are said to be discriminatory in breach of Article 18 of the Treaty on the Functioning of the European Union um, because one member state will grant um, bit rights to the nationals of another member state which it won't necessarily have granted to the nationals of all EU member states. So they're said to be discriminatory. Um, Second, bit rights and, uh, are, are said to overlap and potentially clash with uh, EU law uh, in a number of ways, substantively, and thus breach Article 351 of the Treaty on the Functioning of the European Union, 
which requires member states to take appropriate steps to eliminate incompatible pre-accession uh, agreements. Third, the Commission thinks that allowing investors to vindicate bit rights through international arbitration uh, is a breach of the principle of supremacy of EU law. As you may know, uh, international arbitration tribunals are not able under the Nordsea uh, case law to put um, uh, preliminary questions under Article 267 um, TFEU, what was once Article 177, Kim 234, which are preliminary questions you can ask of the Court of Justice about how to apply, how to interpret, rather, uh, EU law. Under the Nordsea case line, that's not open to international arbitration, so international arbitration tribunals and the BIT tribunals are going to decide disputes <coughs> which may implicate EU law, particularly um, in intra-EU bits, but not only in intra-EU bits. They're going to implicate EU law, and um, uh, the, those tribunals are not necessarily going to give the kind of regard to the principle of supremacy or primacy of EU law, which um, the European Court of Justice requires uh, member state courts to um, observe. Um, the Commission also says that recourse to international arbitration breaches the principle of mutual trust between member states um, because it effectively amounts to a, 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 a failure to use the court system um, on the basis you prefer something else, and that is said to be a breach of the EU law principle of uh, mutual trust. Um, the first case where these issues uh, were uh, ventilated um, seems, so far as we can tell, to have been a case between Eastern Sugar and the Czech Republic, uh, which gave rise to a decision in 2007, so it's relatively recent. Uh, that was an unstructured case. Um, uh, that case concerned the EU sugar regime. Um, Eastern Sugar is a, uh, a sugar producer and refiner, or rather refiner, and um, the Czech Republic had to, as part of the adoption of the acquis communautaire, had to put its sugar market in line with the EU sugar regime, which is a very specific regime which involves um, uh, minimum prices, price, well, price support system, a quota system, and an export subsidy system, uh, regulating sugar beet production and sales and exports, and also imports of sugar beet and sugar cane and refined sugar products. Um, so uh, the Eastern Sugar brought a case claiming that in the way in which the Czech Republic had modified its sugar regime allegedly to comply with EU law requirements, or the, rather with the acquis communautaire to be more accurate, uh, breached its rights uh, as an investor under a bilateral investment treaty. And uh, the Czech Republic objected to the tribunal's jurisdiction, the Unstructured Tribunal's jurisdiction, on the grounds that Article 8 of the Netherlands-Czech Bilateral Investment Treaty, which provided for international arbitration, was superseded uh, pursuant to Article 59 of the Vienna Convention on the Law of Treaties. So you will recall that Article 59 of the VCLT 
um, is to do with the termination or suspension of the operation of a treaty implied by conclusion of a later treaty. And so the Czech Republic sought to argue that by operation of Article 59, whilst there had been no express termination of the Netherlands-Czech bilateral investment treaty, it was uh, terminated nonetheless uh, by operation of Article 59 because there was a later treaty, which was the Accession Treaty, um, which uh, allegedly related to the same subject matter as the Bilateral Investment Treaty, um, and that the parties who were you know, an EU member state and a candidate country would, of course, have intended that on accession of the, non, the candidate country to the EU, they would, of course, have intended for the BIT regime to fall away or at least the right to go to international arbitration to fall away because it would be superseded by just general EU law and, um, and the enforcement of rights thereunder. Um, the, that argument was rejected uh, by the tribunal. Um, it was not actually fully supported even by the European Commission, um, uh, who, who took a slightly different line that we'll come to based on, on, on the Vienna Convention. But the idea that accession to the EU just automatically causes bits to terminate by, ref by application of Article 59 of the Vienna Convention um, uh, was rejected on a number of grounds. I mean, first of all, on the grounds that the subject matter of a bit is not the same as the subject matter of the EU treaties. <coughs> um, specific issues such as Article 18, the discrimination issue, you know, can be dealt with in other ways. You could just give all the same rights to all EU member states. You don't have to take away rights from um, uh, uh, parties that have rights under a bit, um, and that there's no fundamental uh, issue with international arbitration uh, deciding, uh, international arbitration tribunals deciding issues which touch upon uh, EU law. It happens all the time. Um, so the idea that... Uh, that because of Nord Sea, uh, there's an incompatibility um, is, is wrong, and, and there are cases such as Echo Swiss, um, which which show that. Um, the Czech Republic has tried the same argument since it tried it in another case in 2007 called Binder in the Czech Republic. They argue Article 59 again. Uh, Slovakia, the Slovak Republic, has also argued. Uh, Article 59 in a couple of cases. It argued it in, uh, in 2010 cases. Um, it argued it in uh, uh, Ostergetl and Slo the Slovak Republic in 2010. Um, and it argued it in uh, uh, Eureka uh, and the Slovak Republic also in 2010. Uh, and in all those cases, the argument was rejected by uh, the International Arbitral Tribunal um, and I think generally it's an argument that is no longer considered to be um, likely to succeed. Um, and there is a recognition that these intra-EU bits at least have not been, have not automatically fallen away um, by virtue of accession. And the European Commission's tack is now to try to 
um, say that uh, the member states have an obligation to get rid of them, take active steps to get rid of them rather than they're no longer there. Um, and uh, the Commission has been saying that now since about 2005, 2006. And there was a clear majority of member states who, were, who said there just isn't a problem with having bits. They're compatible with EU law. Uh, and, uh, and only a handful of intra-EU bits have been terminated by uh, member states um, uh, since the Commission started pushing for it. The Commission is due, it said, in autumn 2012, so around now, the Commission is due to have another go at persuading the member states to terminate all their intra-EU bits, and I'm not aware whether that uh, attempt has uh, gotten underway or not. I'm not aware that it has, but they, the Commission has said it was going to have another... Um, it was going to raise this again uh, 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 in around this period. It's not the only attack... Uh, based on the Vienna Convention uh, that is made of um, the uh, bilateral investment treaties. Uh, the Commission's preference is to attack them based on Article 30, uh, 3 of the Vienna Convention, uh, which, as you probably know, is, broadly speaking, the lex posterior rule. Uh, so the Commission's point is that there is a later treaty, the accession treaty, which is incompatible um, with at least some provisions of BITS, including the right to go to international arbitration, um, uh, and the later treaty uh, must, pursuant to Article 33, um, uh, take precedence over the early treaty. Now, that raises uh, a number of difficulties. The first is to do with the fact that bilateral investment treaties uh, have uh, are not just... Well, they're concluded between two sovereign states, but there are also private parties who are given rights under them. And there is an issue as to whether um, Article 33 can apply as between a bilateral investment treaty that creates certain rights for a third party and then a later treaty to which those, um, those uh, private parties are not party, um, which would purport to change um, or supersede uh, those provisions, so that there's a first issue about identity of parties. Um, and there were, there were also issues as to whether, and this is the same issue as under Article 59, whether um, the bilateral investment treaty and the EU treaty truly deal with the same subject matter, which is a, a requirement under Article 33. So far, um, the Commission's article, uh, argument has been rejected by a number of um, investment treaty uh, tribunals. Um, it's also been tested in one national court quite recently. Um, that came about in the Eureka uh, Slovak case, which is an unsatural case. So an unsatural case has to have a seat or a situs, and the tribunal in that case decided the situs would be Germany. And so that case is, in a sense, a German international arbitration. It has an attachment to uh, a legal seat, which is Germany, and it means the German courts have some supervising authority over uh, that, that case. 
and the award, uh, the jurisdictional award in, uh, in Eureka, which found in favour of the investor, was challenged in a set-aside action before the German courts, and the German courts decided this year um, the, the Frankfurt Court of Appeal uh, sided with the investor and uh, decided uh, that so far as uh, they could see, there was no Article 33 um, incompatibility, at least insofar as uh, uh, jurisdictional purposes are concerned, um, that there's no, there's, there's no incompatibility of having investment arbitration um, in disputes that arise under uh, intra-EU uh, bits. And interestingly, the Frankfurt Court of Appeal decided that it didn't need to um, put <coughs> a preliminary question to the ECJ, as it could have under Article 267, decided the subject was sufficiently clear, it could decide it on its own. So there was an opportunity where this whole debate could have been lifted to the ECJ, um, and it didn't happen. Um, that case is now under appeal to the German Supreme Court, and we will see uh, what uh, happens. Um, there are uh, a number of other cases that um, that are in this field. There are a number of them where nobody has even thought to raise this issue of compatibility with EU law. So there are cases such as Parkerings and Lithuania and many others where the issue just seems to have been missed or at least not taken. Um, and there are some cases going through the system at the moment that raise it, and one of those is a case that I'm involved in. It's called Mikula uh, and Romania. Um, and in that case, uh, a new, a, a different argument, also based on the Benefit Convention Law Treaties, has been raised uh, both by Romania and by the Commission intervening as amicus brief. And this time it's based on Article 31C of the Vienna Convention. So Article 31, as you know, the Vienna Convention deals with how you interpret treaties. And for many years, Article 31C uh, was um, uh, not used. It's the, it's the bit that says, there shall be taken into account, together with the context, any relevant rules of international law applicable in the relations between the parties. So it requires, as an interpretive exercise of a treaty, to take into account um, other relevant rules of international law. So for a long time, that had never been applied in pretty much any case. But in the last few years, it's become a focus of quite a lot of interest in public international law, so it may be something that you have, um, have looked at, um, and, and you know, it sometimes goes under very uh, grand names such as the principle of systemic integration uh, in public international law, or sometimes it's called the fragmentation issue. And there's a there's a very large study called the by the ILC called the fragmentation study that deals with how do you reconcile different bits of international law, and can, and should you be able to reconcile them via interpreting away uh, potential differences. Um, and this has come up in the WTO context, and it's now it's now being used in the Mikula case may have come up in the Saluka case, it's not clear, but it, it, it um, is now 
coming as a, another means of, of uh, but this time as interpretation of dealing with alleged incompatibilities between bits and EU law. And the suggestion has been that, um, that you should pretty much, um, as a matter of interpretation, reinterpret bit rights so that they um, coincide and are subsidiary to um, EU law. Um, and that uh, is, uh, it's raises some difficult issues, um, notably that, of course, Article 31 3C is only an interpretive aid, so it's not there to solve conflicts of norms. Um, and it's... It, it's uh, uh, discretionally and only follows consideration of the bit itself. Um, it probably should not apply uh, in circumstances such as a bit where the bit grants rights to individuals um, and certainly shouldn't be seen to, to alter the fundamental structure and object of the bit. So if you have the European Commission saying, yeah. well, you know, as a matter of interpretation, where the treaty says, the bit says, it shall be enforced for 20 years that really means four years, that's not an interpretation. That's an attempt to overturn the meaning of the bilateral investment treaty. Um, uh, but, but there is now um, a discussion um, about the relevance of systemic interpretation and fragmentation in how you read together bits uh, and, um, and uh, European law. Um, so where is all this going? I mean, there are some other cases I could mention, AES Hungary, Electrical Hungary, that we were involved in. Um, I'll mention that one briefly, only because I think it's the first case where, at the level of the arbitral tribunal, they applied the principle. They said, look, ultimate, we don't think there is a conflict, and in any event, in this case, it doesn't matter because the investor loses. But if there were a conflict, then we apply the... We're an international tribunal... We're, we're appointed under the ICSID Convention. Uh, we apply the rule uh, of public international law that uh, a sovereign state cannot rely on its own law to um, uh, violate or, to, or breach an obligation under international law. And so far as we're concerned, uh, your obligations under the EU treaty are really just your domestic law and that therefore if one has to address head-on this issue of conflict of norms, uh, as an international tribunal, as an exit tribunal, we resolve them by saying uh, the bit rights uh, trump EU law just as they would trump any other bit of domestic law. So the AES case uh, is interesting uh, for that reason. Um, so the issue is, is where does all of this leave us and comes back to the question, um, are, given the, the outright hostility of the European Commission in particular to these uh, intra-EU bits, are investments under them still protected? Uh, and we don't really know the answer to that. Uh, what we do know is that is that the argument that they no longer exist by virtue of Article 59 of the VCLT has been rejected on a number of occasions and looks suspect. 
um, we know that um, international tribunals that have grappled with this issue to date have considered that either there is no conflict or if there is one, then bit rights trump EU law so far as an international public international law tribunal is concerned. Um, but what we, we also know through Eureka, we know that one member state national court has had to grapple with this issue, <coughs> but just one so far. Um, and it said there was no real conflict, at least at the jurisdictional level. It didn't talk to whether there was a, a, a conflict between the substantive rights under BITS and under EU law, just on the, juris, the issue of could you go to arbitration and the jurisdictional issues to do with that. Um, but we don't know yet what's going to happen when people try to enforce BIT awards uh, in the EU. And there, there are a number of different um, there are a number of different uh, cases. Um, there is the case of an UNCITRAL award, uh, or, or an ICC award, or an LCIA award, or any kind of ad hoc award where the enforcement mechanism is the New York Convention, the 1958 New York Convention. And we know that the New York Convention contains uh, an exception to the obligation to enforce arbitral awards based upon public policy. We also know that traditionally public policy has been interpreted very narrowly as grounds for setting aside an arbitral award. But at the same time, we know that the ECJ has an expansive notion of of EU law rules as public policy. And so the issue is member state courts, when faced with um, an obligation to enforce a, um, a, a bit award under the New York Convention, are going to be faced with the obligation they have under the New York Convention on the one hand and their obligations as courts being part of the EU system, including either the faculty or at times the requirement that they ask the ECJ under Article 267 for rulings as to the proper interpretation of, of, of EU law. So for the moment, um, we don't know how they're going to, how national courts are going to reconcile those two um, uh, competing considerations, and we don't know whether they are going to or when they're going to kick this issue up to the ECJ and what the ECJ will will say. <clears throat> what I can say about the New York Convention is that it's, it's immensely important to um, EU companies when they invest abroad outside of the EU that their awards get enforced and therefore it's immensely important that um, what are really domestic policy issues um, do not stand in the way of the enforcement of awards that arise out of international commercial relations. And so it would be very dangerous if um, the, the, the courts, uh, domestic courts in the EU, under pressure from the Commission or from the ECJ, started expanding massively what should be considered a public policy exception for the purposes of, of the New York Convention, because if, if the EU states do that, well, there's no reason why, why the, the hundred and what is it nowadays, 160-odd countries that are party to the New York Convention wouldn't all start doing that, and then the system would break down. But the unstral cases, the, the New York Convention cases, in a sense, the easy ones. But there are two other categories. Um, 
the next one are the ICSID cases. What's interesting about the ICSID cases is um, they, the enforcement of ICSID awards is provided for in the ICSID Convention itself, and it doesn't provide for an exception based on public policy grounds. Um, so uh, ICSID awards are meant to be enforced by convention countries as if they were a final judgment. So um, in principle, those cases should not give rise to an opportunity to filter for public policy on public policy grounds and should not give rise, therefore, to any kind of need to refer to the ECJ. Um, and so if member states try to, to do that or the commission encourages that, then that will create a conflict at the level of uh, the ICSID convention, um, which, which will be... Um, which will be interesting. There's a third category of cases that, um, that bears mentioning, and that is the Energy Charter Treaty cases. What's interesting about that is the EU is actually party to the Energy Charter Treaty itself. The EU, as a as a, a person of uh, internet, public international law, um, <clears throat> and there the the Energy Charter Treaty contains provisions for private parties going to investment arbitration, they contain pretty much the same protections as in any bit, um, and uh, cases can arise under those. And in fact, I mentioned earlier that uh, a Swedish investor has just started suing Germany for its change in nuclear policy and all of those. And it seems to me it's very difficult um, in relation to a treaty where the EU itself is party or the member states are party for um, the EU to resist the enforcement of, um, of, uh, of, um, of those awards, ECT awards, um, when the same sort of principled objections that the Commission has to BIT cases would apply equally uh, in ECT cases. So um, uh, we will see uh, where we go from here. Um, the... Uh, there are cases such as Mikula where probably the award will come out within the next uh, four or five months um, and where um, then issues, these types of issues will arise. And that, that's an ICSID case, um, so it will be in that second category. Um, but we're going to see some, some, some more developments in this field, I think, uh, over the next uh, few months. And as I say, it raises fundamental issues about the relationship between international treaties and the EU and between um, uh, uh, systems such as that under the New York Convention or that under the ICSID Convention or that under the uh, Energy Charter Treaty uh, and EU law.